What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. This is Austin, your host for the ad space today. And if this is your first time tuning in, welcome to the community of preparedness. We appreciate you being here. We appreciate your support. And we look forward to getting you invested in our other content as well to help make you, you and your family a more prepared version of yourself. And I'm going to go ahead and jump into the sponsors that make this content free for you guys. First up is Triarch Systems. Triarch Systems has been with us since the inception of the company. Chris Reeves and his entire crew have always treated us right. Great folks over there, and that's what makes us really excited about working with them and them being a sponsor of ours. And I got to tell you, the weapon systems, the custom weapon systems that they make there are top-notch, the best I've ever used, and I know the rest of the tactical side of training would back me up on that. These weapons can be used and abused and continue to come back for more. So head over to TriarchSystems.com, use code FIELDCRAFT, and it'll save you 5% on your next build over at TriarchSystems.com. Next up is KC Highlights. KC Highlights has been in the game for a long time. I should tell you and give you trust in the experience that they have and the equipment that they build there. The lighting systems that they have are top notch and that's why we use them here at Fuelcraft Survival. Um, I know for the last couple of years that I've been with the company, uh, Mike and most of the crew here have had Casey highlights on their trucks if they've been building them out. And I mean, these lights have always worked flawlessly. And to double down on that even, everybody there is awesome. Like the whole, the whole crew, Taylor, Ali, and the rest of the gang over there have always treated us well, and we appreciate those guys. And if you guys want the best lights on your vehicles, whatever it could be for, go to caseyhighlights.com, use code FIELDCRAFT, and it'll save you 10% the next time you need some lights for your vehicle. So today for the podcast, Kevin Estella sat down with a good friend of his and a man I had the pleasure of meeting named Craig Cottle. And Craig is a master nationalist in the state of Kentucky, as well as a survival instructor. And I, honestly, he is one of the most talented, uh, well-spoken, knowledgeable guys that I've ever had the privilege of working with and to learn from. I actually took his tracking course while he was here in town, and I got to tell you, it blew my freaking mind. So I'm looking forward to learning more from Craig, and I hope that you guys will in this podcast. So here we go. You guys are going to be treated to something that's pretty awesome. A little backstory about this guest. I joined Fieldcraft in January of 2021, and in the early talks I had with Mike Lover and with Kevin Owens, they said, hey, when you jump on board, do you have a number of guys that you would want to bring on board to help out teaching the survival curriculum and expanding what we do into different areas? And I was like, absolutely, 100%, I've got a, a bunch of guys. And they're like, okay, well, who are a few of them? And I had three names off the top of my head, and this gentleman sitting across from me right now was one of them because this guy and I, we, uh, we started talking on Facebook years ago, and I just liked the way that he presented survival content. I thought he doesn't let any nonsense get in the way of hard skills and understanding the content. I mean, he wanted people to be educated, um, and I, I was super impressed with the way that he, he presented materials. Well, then, a while afterwards, I met him at Blade Show, uh, and... Along the way, he actually is the reason why uh, my book got published because he was the one that said, hey, I got a guy. So uh, it was awesome to be able to bring him onto the Fieldcraft Survival you know, adjunct team as one of our contractors teaching survival content. But not just any survival content. He does something that a lot of people cannot do. Uh, number one, he is a uh, amazing, amazing instructor in terms of land navigation. But his main forte and what you guys are going to find is going to be really interesting is tracking. And not just tracking like like a hunter tracking down game, but we're talking about all forms of tracking, including people. Uh, and this is going to be interesting. So... Craig Caudill, how the heck are you? I am doing fantastic right here in Utah. Yeah, in Utah, not in your native Kentucky, not at your native not, elevation. Not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Yeah, definitely not. not. Uh, yeah, this is this is really exciting. I'm glad that you came out here. Craig is going to be filming a bunch of video content with us. You guys are going to be able to find it uh, on our various social media platforms. And if you guys, uh, I'm going to say this a bunch of times because I want to promote you uh 
please check out the Nature Reliance School. Craig is one of the good guys. Uh, he's someone who I could send students to without even worrying about them if they're going to get something out of it. And in the past courses that you've taught, Craig, students have actually approached me and they're like, that course needs to be two, three, four, five days. They're like, this is a lifetime study and, and your, your work speaks for itself. So... Where do we begin with this podcast? Like we, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, That's we, what I was sitting here thinking. Where are we going to get this started? <laughs> okay, so it's it's for the, those of you that are listening to this, we don't script anything. We do not have notes in front of us. There's no such thing as like preparing for any of these. We just kind of go with it. Um, I mean, we could be talking about knives. We could be talking about tracking, about Craig's early start. So let, let's just – let's take it to the very beginning. You, you, grew, in, you grew up in Kentucky. Um, what was that like childhood? Country boy is what we would call it in Kentucky. Uh, a lot of fun on the farm, uh, raising cattle, raising crops, spent a lot of time hunting, a lot of time fishing, a lot of time just in the woods playing. And if there was anything that's a little different than your typical country kid back in Kentucky that I did, I did a fair amount of what we would call period correct reenacting, uh, dressing up like Daniel Boone style and getting out making flint steel fires, sleeping in teepees, sleeping in lean-tos, uh, living off the land, literally, uh, with muzzle-loading black powder firearms, both rifles and shotgun, uh, going to what we called rendezvous back in the day where there'd be, you know, 100 teepees or 25 lean-tos, or some of us would just sleep right on the ground. And if we didn't kill something to eat, we didn't eat. And so we had to kill something to eat. And we spent a lot of time with a big Dutch oven hanging over a fire. We had possum, raccoon, squirrel, whatever we could come across. And some unmentionables from time to time that would be in that pot <laughs> that uh, just happened to be food, what we could scrounge up and put in there. There were, uh, you know, that, that was it, I, I guess, as far as getting into what most people refer to as survival, maybe even getting into bushcraft, I'd say period correct reenacting is kind of where I started doing that sort of stuff, if you will. Yeah. And I know you're still active with that because I've seen some of the photos that you have on social media of you, you know, still very much that's part of who you are. And some of those period reenactors, I mean, I know that there are strict rules on like certain groups and, and I'm going to butcher this, but I know certain groups will say like, you can't go to those reenactments unless everything on your uniform, everything in your kit is period correct. Right. Like they, yeah. And that's actually why my dad got away from it and why I will never do it again. No, kidding. because there's too, there's too many sticklers for that kind of stuff. I'm a history fan. I love history. I know you do too. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, for example, I built a flintlock rifle last year from a kit and did that on YouTube and our Facebook and everything, and everybody loved it and followed it. And, and because I'm not a craftsman, but I put together a rifle that, you know, I'm going to take out and kill turkeys and deer with. And so that is just me trying to tap back into what it is that my history, I'm a big fan of Simon Kenton, big fan of Shawnee. Uh, they were all doing what they did back in the where I'm from, in Kentucky. So the Native American influence on the way they existed the frontiersmen, the way they did things from a, you know, not just a woodsmanship standpoint, from an ethical standpoint. There were some of these frontiersmen were bad dudes, bad dudes. Some of them were ethical woodsmen. And so they tried to take care of the woods and tried to take care of the people that are around them. And that's kind of the attitude I have too. Yeah. I know with a lot of those period reenactors, um, you know, we just had a guy last night you can get very specialized in that, right? Like oh, yeah. the guy last night in our seminar said that he's a map maker and he, he specializes in making period correct maps of nice. that, that time period. But you know, what's interesting I find about your neck of the woods is everyone seems to know the history down there of the region, right? Like new England. I mean, I'm from new England, very old history, right? I mean, we're talking about cities and towns that predate the nation, but you ask the average person in New England, hey, tell me about the history of your area, and many people can't tell you that. It seems like almost everyone in, in Kentucky, Tennessee, right, the Carolinas to some extent, they seem to know their history inside and out. There's a, there's a pride in that part of the world down there. Uh, I wouldn't say it's all of Appalachia, mm -hmm. but particularly, particularly Kentucky and Tennessee, there's a certain pride that goes along with the way people view their states in that neck of the woods. And so I think taking pride in the state itself 
forces you to somewhat want to understand your history, but don't don't get me wrong. It's the same way down there too. I mm-hmm. mean, I, it might be Kevin too that a lot of the people that you know are people that are into the outdoors and maybe they're connected to history. But there's a whole world. I mean, my daughter was is a is an aquatics director and has lifeguards work for her that are teenagers, and a lot of them don't know what happened on September 11th. Oh. You know, and I mean, it's just we we took a different route with our children and made them study history whether they wanted to or not and they both ended up loving portions of it and so that is something that you know was probably ingrained in me and and the people that I surround and I try to make you know when we podcast for our Nature Reliance podcast we tell stories from history just Mm -hmm. as a means of studying history studying survival studying tracking whatever it might be and I if you know you've got to know your history right or you're doomed to repeat it so you want to feel old the, the freshmen right now were born in like 2007, 2008. You, you think about that. Like they live, they haven't lived through much of anything, hard. anything hard. The pandemic, right? like, man, that was hard, right? Oh dear God. Don't get me started <laughs> on that one. <laughs> we got to stay at home and eat whatever we wanted oh to eat. And all the utilities God. are on. That was, that's rough. It's so hard on us. But. Yeah. It's definitely hard <laughs> fighting off that or, or getting rid of the COVID weight. But uh, I mean, what's interesting I find, and I'm going to get back to your, your, background is tracking sure your your knife that you have mm-hmm. um it's definitely influenced by the the long hunter knives right like the right. knives that and i remember you talking about this years ago knives that guys would use to defend themselves they put food on the table they process game so can you talk about that who you're working with what it looks like and all that stuff yeah the knife the name of the knife is shaman east which is a shawnee word for long hunter or long knives uh they're you can get really specific on whether it was a long hunter or a long knife, depending on who you're talking about, because those are actually two different roles. But these guys, Simon Kenton, Daniel Boone, Lewis Wetzel, uh, some of these fellas, what they were well known for is being able to go into an environment and take care of themselves, sometimes for months. Boone went off one time for like 14 months before anybody ever saw him again. And so they had to have a knife that, yeah, they could fight with, they could defend their life with against a human aggressor, an animal aggressor. They had to be able to process big critters. They had to be able to process small critters. They had to be able to build shelters. You know, one of the things, the Chamonix is a long knife compared to most. And I use it as a draw knife. I teach my students how to use that, set that up as a draw knife because it's a, a draw knife is a useful tool. And if you're a, a scout tracker, out for six months and you're building a half-face shelter it's got to last you for a year or two while you're gathering furs or whatever mm-hmm. then you've you want to be able to have a draw knife and if you're carrying what's in your rifleman's pouch and what's in your possible's bag it's going to be that knife and that was it and so i went a little bit different when i designed a knife and that my opinion on it was don't try to recreate something new. Right. Go back to history, see what worked, because we know that design worked, the length, the style, and then update it. And that's where LT Right Knives came in. LT Right Knives came in. I met with LT and, and Scooter and Mikey and all those guys up there, super great crew up at LT Right Knives, and said, all right, I, you know, frankly, I don't know knives like a lot of bushcraft or survivalists do. Uh, it's one of them things that I can't remember all the steels and what they all do and Rockwell hardnesses and all the grinds and what everybody prefers them for. And I said, this is what I want. And LT was right with me. He knew exactly what I was trying to do. And he's like, I've got it. This is what we got to do. And so he threw in some design features and some ideas. We, we basically drew the knife out sitting there in his office the day I went up there. And before I left, they had a cutout in, in, in wood of what it would look like. And I said, that's my knife. I've been dreaming about that knife for <laughs> you know years now and then yeah. the next thing i know they sent me a prototype and we've been selling a bunch of them since then love yeah. the blade love the blade so roughly it's what like six or seven inch blade 12 inch total 12 uh, inch overall total. and the blade seven inches yeah and i've seen it i've i've seen yours uh your prototype has a couple things on it that didn't go into production but overall the the general uh shape and form is still all there and uh the thing that stands out to people when they pick it up is that it's a lot thinner yeah a lot lighter than most people and yes. this is where i really differ than most people in the bushcraft survival community 
and I know that, and I quite frankly don't care. Then, I, then I'm different. <laughs> this, this, is uh, why, this is why I'm, I'm friends with you. <laughs> I cut up a lot of deer, and yeah. I wanted to be able to field dress that deer and cut it up and put it in my freezer and be able to cut, you know, thin pieces of meat. If I wanted to make jerky, I wanted to use the same knife. I couldn't do that with what I was seeing coming out of bushcraft and survival. Mm-hmm. The, the blades are too thick for that. They're not. I wanted to get as close as I could to a knife that you could use to fillet fish, and my knife can fillet fish easily, easily, and it can also gut a deer or an elk because it's done it several times. Not mine, but I mean, I've sewed so many of them. People are sending me pictures back. Man, I cut this black bear up with it. I got this elk out with it. What have you? And that's where I differed a little bit in that it's a little bit thinner than most, and I like that because it slices right through the rib cage. I'm not a big fan of batoning. I think I can get stuff done with that mm-hmm. batoning, so I'm not one to abuse it. And actually, two nights ago, I got the first phone call where somebody had broke the tip off of one. No kidding. Prying out a five five six round out of a wow. 249. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, dude, I will I will pay LT right to give you another knife. Because, I mean, this, this is a warfighter out there, you know, and he's like – I use that blade to try to get my five five six out of my rifle, Damn. and I was like, "Man, you know, you're." He said, "I know I'm not supposed to do that, but you know, whatever." Man, that's incredible. Yeah, a lot of people they discredit the big knives. I mean, I I'm, I enjoy training with all different knives, little knives, big knives, and whenever someone says, "Well, you can't use a big knife for doing X, Y, or Z," I always tell them, "Look at the footage of the indigenous populations from Latin America and these yeah. little kids that are." five six years old holding a 12 inch machete probably like an ontario machete or a tramontina machete and they're doing everything with that including fine skinning and whatnot so when people say that they can't maybe they haven't learned maybe they don't prefer it but please don't say that you can't do something with that you know yeah if somebody Uh, says you can't do that with that no i say no you can't do that correct i can yeah (laughs) so that's that's one way of looking at it now we jumped ahead a little bit. Mm-hmm. You grew up in, in Kentucky. You did a lot of the, the period correct re, uh, reenacting. Um, have you been a full-time outdoor instructor your entire life? Or like what, what no. were the odd jobs that you had leading up to owner of Nature Reliance School? Okay, so I, I went to the University of Kentucky, graduated with a degree in statistics. And my whole, and, and with a, not necessarily a minor, but my focus was in uh, production and inventory control. My dad had worked at IBM and built printers and stuff of that nature, and I, I wanted to follow in his footsteps. He provided a great foundation for us, and we had farm and all that kind of good stuff, and I felt like it was a good living, so I wanted to do that. And I quickly realized I was going to be miserable doing that. I'm, I can't be stuck inside. And so um, fortunately, my dad had also taught me growing up, find something that you love to do and try to make a living out of it and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And this is where I'm glad I did, but I made the first mistake in, in my life. Is Right after I got out of school, I, I worked as a registration manager, and then I worked at a natural gas utility doing statistical modeling for forecasting of weather and gas needs. Okay. That sounds so boring. It was boring, dude. It was boring. <laughs> Sorry. Boring. Sorry for anyone that's... It was, and it was swing shift, too, man. It's an important job, but it's it's boring, okay? So I had started studying judo when mm-hmm. my, me and my wife, or my wife and I first got married, and I loved it. I fell in love with it, and I'd never done anything like that growing up, no martial arts or anything like that. I played baseball and, and tried to walk on at UK, and just it didn't work out, and... and uh, I just fell in love with martial arts and I left the natural gas utility to teach martial arts full time. And I did that for quite a long time and ended up developing an injury in one of my arms that a doctor said, Hey, if you keep doing that stuff, I'm going to cut your arm off. And he said, you've got to quit. You've got to quit doing what you're doing. And and it was, my whole life was revolved around martial Mm arts, excuse me, martial arts, running a dojo. Um, I have advanced black belt degrees in judo and Aikido and I was devastated, quite frankly. But sometime before that, my martial arts students knew that I was just an outdoorsman, and so I had casually, slowly but surely been teaching some of them outdoor stuff, right. tracking, survival. Um, I didn't do much navigation back then. Tracy Trimble, one of our other instructors, did most of that to help me. And then it that just kept growing and then survival tv happened right and it just that blew up i just had more and more of that happening and i was almost doing it as much as i was teaching martial arts when all this arm thing happened and so 
I, I quit teaching martial arts. I handed my dojo off to one of my longtime students. And at that point I was working for another or for, for a gear company mm-hmm. and was doing gear reviews for them. They were paying me what I considered a very fair wage. And because of that, uh, I was able to leave martial arts and start doing that sort of thing. Nature Reliance School was started in 2006. We started adding to uh, what we were doing there. I had so many contacts with law enforcement and military uh, doing combatives and hand-to-hand, the judo in particular. Uh, A lot of guys really like that for their work. And those contacts ended up growing into survival and tracking training in particular for law enforcement and military. And so it just kind of grew. And then just I was very blessed in that certain things came at the right time. Um, Don't get me wrong, it was a struggle. I didn't make much money and haven't made much money doing what I've been doing. But in the last couple of years, it's just gone crazy in a good way. And so it's just we put a lot of work into it. I am surrounded by some of the greatest people in the world, most especially my wife. She's been incredibly supportive of whatever I want to do. She's been there. Um, she Now our kids are out of the house. We're empty nesters. So she does a whole lot of stuff for Nature Reliance School that has just made it go gangbusters. Uh, Tracy that I mentioned earlier, other people that have been with us at different times have made nature. It's not just me. It's, it's, it's a community of people that made it what it is. And I've always just tried to do work and business ethically as best I could and develop relationships. I don't get along with people really well. <laughs> Unless I respect you, and if I respect you, I get along with you really well, yeah. and I do everything I can to help people, even to the detriment of myself. And so a lot of those relationships have come back, case in point, right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was one of those things where, you know, I've tried to help people, and people have, quite frankly, just helped me more than I could ever be th- thankful for I just more than I can imagine yeah and I know that along the way you and I were both writing for magazines same same magazine same same editors and you know I know that we uh, you know we shared a lot of very similar opinions about different ways of running survival schools and whatnot right and I think something that the listener should definitely pay attention to is how do you choose a survival school right that's a question I get all the time because let's face it survival courses they're probably going to be pricey and there are people that are willing to teach you for free but realize that you get what you pay for and sometimes when you're taught for free it's not the best investment of your time because someone you know doesn't have the resources so question comes up all the time how do you choose a survival school and i know i have an answer but i and i have a funny feeling it's going to be your answer it's very similar if you have to give advice to someone uh you know random you know guy on the street hey i want to take a survival class help me find a survival school what should i look for what do you look for man that's a tough question you know i try to get that response out of every guest on the podcast that's a tough question good question you know like it is a good question i'm also helping you buy some time to think about it you know so (laughs) (laughs) go ahead man well i think it it comes down to two or three different things first i think the experience has to be there Mm -hmm. you have to have someone that has experience and the difficulty is survival You've got experience. I mean, have you done something wrong so many times and screwed up so many times that whatever, you know, you, you're you're an expert at doing things wrong in the outdoors so you have to survive? No, I'm not meaning that. What I mean is there there's hundreds of thousands of people that go into the woods every day and never need survival training. Mm-hmm. Those people are very experienced because they take the steps to pre-plan uh, when things go wrong and they recognize they're going wrong, they don't continue to get in the middle of them. They, they back out of them. They have a mindset. They have the ability to critically think. So the first one, I think, would be somebody that is experienced, somebody that has some time in the woods. Number two, and this is a big one, and I think this is something me and you agree with, I feel like we should, is the person's got to be able to teach. Amen. And that's what I personally think is desperately missing in our community if you want to call it an industry if you will is that you've got some people that have good wood skills but they can't teach people and they're and when i say teach yeah you might be able to entertain people there's a difference between entertaining Mm -hmm. people in front of them lecturing at people and then teaching them in such a way that when they walk away from class they've got a usable skill set that takes a quality teacher and i've said for years about our school and it's the same way i'm conducting the things i'm doing with fieldcraft is that I, 
I spend as much time studying how to teach people as I do what I'm going to teach people. Meaning I've studied psychology, I study sociology, I study how to read people. I look and study and, and try to recognize when somebody's not getting something so that I can give them the attention that they need, so that I am adequately being an instructor. And I f- feel very, very strongly about that. Um, last but not least, it's got to be somebody that you want to be in the woods with. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a good one of my tracking instructors, Cornelius Nash, one of the finest men in the world, just one of the finest men I've ever had the the uh, honor to train under. Uh, he he had an interesting background, and uh, I let him tell it if you ever talk to him. But um, one of the things he always told me is, Craig, don't teach classes as if they're special forces selection course. That's stupid. You're not let special forces do that. That's what special forces selection is for. You are a teacher. You are an instructor. You are a professional. You're not there to beat people up. You're there to teach them so that when they, when they walk away, they have a usable skill set. And it really impressed me because his background's a pretty impressive background. And I always thought, you know, that's and – and I was doing that. He just kind of reinforced that. Because I think a tendency that some folks have is to push people through, you know, some um, – facsimile of special forces selection course in a survival course level one and that's from my perspective that's not the way to do it that doesn't mean that you don't do that at advanced level sure but what you're going to build a foundation for somebody and somebody's coming new to a class you've got to build a foundation you don't put them on a sandy foundation you you build a foundation on rock and so you've got to teach them be connected to them as an instructor and and i think that's a I think that's the three parts, if that makes sense. It it absolutely does. And that last part really comes down to like philosophy and culture, right? Like the philosophy of the instructor. I mean, let's face it. Fieldcraft has a very strong pedigree in special forces, yet I have no military experience and it's a good balance. So when I came on board, I was teaching in ways that, you know, Kevin Owens was very complimentary of me. But he also recognized that, like, okay, I'm teaching it in a different way that will be better suited for the masses because not everyone, like you said, can go through that special forces training. Um, The culture is another one because you want to find a survival school where you see eye to eye with the instructor in terms of what your, like, the future version of yourself is going to look like. But then you also want to make sure that the people in those courses are like you, right? And let's face it, there are survival schools out there where it's very much the REI granola hippie. You're showing up and people are are doing friction fire barefoot, which I never understood that. Like, you know, let's take off our shoes before we do friction fire, or we could just leave our boots on. Apparently it makes your bow drill more effective. Oh wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Apparently I've I've heard that. Cool. Um, And then you've also got the other schools that are cult like where everyone is dressing like the instructor. And if you speak out of turn or question the instructor, I mean, it's going to make your experience at that school absolutely miserable. So you want to do your your due diligence. You want to do your research and make sure that the school that you're going to invest all this money in, the people that you're going to be training under and the people you're training with are like you. Or else it's like it's like going to a family reunion and, you know, having, you know, the, you know, everyone at the family, you know, talking politics. And next, you know, you bring up one thing and now everyone's jumping down your throat. So, yeah, I'm I'm not a big fan of just saying, well, you have to take this class because this is the only guy to teach it. I have, you probably have multiple ways of something being taught. um, But, you know, you just got to find the right one. That's, that's going to fit you. All right, guys, we're going to interrupt the podcast and talk to you about our sponsor element. Element's a drink mix that is taking over the world. With Element, you can get back those valuable electrolytes after you've been fasting, working out. It'll help you fight the keto flu, carb cravings, and it will kickstart your day in the mornings to help you fight that mid-morning grogginess that we all get. Element has zero sugar, zero artificial ingredients and coloring, and many professional athletes and leagues such as the NBA and the NFL and even the Olympic weightlifting team has switched over to Element and are seeing the results. Guys, Element has an awesome, awesome offering for the Fieldcraft Survival podcast listeners, and it's a chance for you to use Element for free. Using our link down in the show notes, Element will send you a sample pack that includes eight packets of assorted flavors. All you have to do is pay shipping, which is around $5 or so. 
don't miss this offer. It's totally risk-free. And if you do end up buying some and changing your mind later on, you can return it, no questions asked. They're proud to offer you guys a no BS customer service. We've all been trying Element here in the office, and we've got to tell you after using it for a while, I promise you guys it's worth checking out. All right, back to the podcast. Well, I had a... I had another instructor. Man, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I really do. I mean, I've had some of the greatest teachers. It's just been phenomenal what I've had access to. Right there in Kentucky, Rodney Van Zant, who's one of my tactical shooting instructors, career in law enforcement, uh, he, he impressed upon me this phrase, Craig, my way is not the way of doing yes. things. It is a way of yes. doing things. And I've tried to emulate that ever since the first time I heard that come out of his mouth. And what I try to tell people is my way is not the way of doing things. It is a way of doing things. And you need to figure out your way of doing things. And I'm going to help you do that. I'm 52 years old, empty nester with my wife. Um, kids are grown. And I don't have the same life that somebody over here that's single mm-hmm. that lives on their own and lives in an apartment has. I have a very different existence. And I don't. I used to through hike a lot. I don't do that anymore. I kind of saunter through the woods these days or, or kayak. Uh, you know, I, I, I do a lot of that sort of thing these days. I don't do as much through hiking and hardcore work out there anymore. So my needs, particularly in survival, is different than that 25-year-old dude over there that's, that is a mule and can carry a 100-pound mm-hmm. pack like I was when I was that age. I, I can't do that anymore. So we've got to approach it differently. That doesn't mean that I can't teach him. I can I can teach him. I will teach him. But I can still teach that guy at 70 years old, too, because he's different as well. Yeah. And so that's that's what I want to do is I want to build I want to build people up. Leadership, leadership is, you know, those memes that you see on social media all the time is not driving somebody with a whip. It's building everybody up around you so that you all rise up together. Yeah. And I think that's critical. And that's that's what I've always done at my school that's what i'm doing with our classes at fieldcraft Mm -hmm. i'm building the people that i have the opportunity to train at fieldcraft to to build fieldcraft to be big large successful and it's it's that's a good goal yeah and you know your point about the the guy driving people with the whip there's a distinction between someone who's a boss versus a leader right a leader is Right. right there with you they're actually they're they're taking the licks right the boss is the one providing the licks uh so yeah, I think that's a, an, an important concept. And you know, I think something that I've noticed teaching, and I'm sure you have too, it, it's when you have an instructor who is willing to answer questions and there's no question that's off limits, the class gets more out of it. I've been in courses where you'll ask a instructor something and the instructor will say, we're not talking about that. It's like, why not? What, what are we afraid of? Why are we not right. bringing that up? You know, you know this as well as I do. That's an old martial arts thing. Yes, and that's and that drives me insane. You know, somebody is too wise and too all knowing to be able to answer even the most fundamental question is that should send alarm signals out to anybody studying anything in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it should be, and it might be that there's a better time to ask the question or address it. I get that. Uh, There's definitely times where I've told students, you know, we'll we can't address that right now. And there's been times in the middle of very stressed out situations, I will tell people they need to shut up and get to work just because it's time to get things done instead of just breaking things down. Paralysis by analysis is going to kill us kind of thing. And so there's a time for both. And I think it takes somebody that spends time studying leadership um, to, to be able to understand that. And you said that, and, and the first thing that came to mind is a book that was recommended to me years ago, In Extremist Leadership. Mm-hmm. It's about how people lead others in, in different, uh, in different way, in different organizations, whether it was the book was on the military, uh, skydiving, and something else I can't recall. It's been a while. But basically, the way most leadership books and, and theories and methods are are done in organizations where what happens if we screw up is we lose money. And in survival in particular, people die or get hurt. And so there has to be. You talk to the guys that run Fieldcraft. This is why Fieldcraft is so good, because they lead because the way they led in battle Somebody died if they made mistakes or they mm-hmm. didn't plan properly. Paid for in blood. Yeah, exactly. So they, they had to learn how to lead and guide and direct others from that being the bottom line, which is death or tragedy. 
And so I think if you're going to be in the business or in the process of teaching survival, you need to have someone that knows how to lead where people's lives are on the line. And it's not just a business. It's not, hey, I want you to, you know, I want you to come back to level two and it's all about getting the certificates or the patches or whatever. And I'm not saying those things are not valuable and important. They, they kind of are at times. But, but what is most important is getting information into people so that they can actually have a usable skill set. Absolutely. And interesting segue, we're talking about leading. If you're leading, that means that there's a follower. And the real reason I brought you here is because of your tracking ability. So let's talk yeah. about following and let's sure. get to this tracking thing. Uh, right. And for those of you that want to continue talking about leadership or hearing more about leadership, we have a lot of content that we've been putting out about leadership. There are some great books. Jocko's uh, book, Extreme Leadership, is really good. Um, you know, there are so many good resources that are out there. Highly recommend them. Uh, because it'll help you find people that you want to follow and it'll help you find a way to lead people correctly in an ethical way that both Craig and I will pat you on the back for. But getting to tracking, um, how do, I mean, how do you crack that nut, right? Like, like I, obviously your background growing up hunting, being in the woods, that has a large portion to do with it. But I'm sure there are a lot of people who have looked at our website who are listening to this right now and said, intro to tracking. Oh, I could never do that. I know you're shaking your head, right? So how how did you get into tracking? How does the average person get into tracking? They track, okay? And this is, well, how did I get into tracking? Tracking, yeah. just game hunting, like a lot of people that start getting into tracking, is, is I was tracking game, whether it was a deer that I'd shot or if I was just tracking things in the snow, I just was fascinated by that sort of thing. I, when I was young, when I get off the bus, I had a trap line that I would run on the way to the bus and on the way home from the bus every day. And so when it would snow, it was great because I could find out where I need to set those traps a little bit easier. And it came to mind, well, I need to figure out where they're going anyway, even when the snow's not on. And so I started studying tracking earlier, um, like when I was a kid. And then I, I felt like tracking is a thing that can change people's lives and so I started investing a lot of time into it thinking you know I probably want to teach others this someday mm -hmm. and I knew how I would teach my kids and I taught my kids the way basically I was taught and the way that I developed some own things of my own but it's a whole different animal when you start teaching people you don't know that are not in your house people that are strangers how do you take a stranger and teach them tracking well the first thing is that everybody needs to understand that there's a huge myth surrounding tracking that it's some sort of art and that only a select few people have the eye for it. That is garbage. <laughs> Complete and total myth garbage. And it drives me crazy when I hear people talking about that. And there's some charlatans out there that talk like that because they're the only ones that can track and all that kind of stuff. And that's garbage. Anyone listening to me and you right now can be a tracker anyone because it is because it is a science and once you understand the science behind it even when you lose sign there is a system of procedures that we go through when we lose sign so that we don't just go wandering and in the class that we're going to teach Saturday that's probably want to be one of the most beneficial things that these folks get is we're going to track and then we're going to lose it because guess what all trackers lose sign mm -hmm. all trackers lose it and then by having a system of how to go about reacquiring it and getting back on it, you don't waste time, you don't waste and contaminate the area where you're located. And so I think the big thing to get out of how to get people new into tracking that may have an interest in it and are telling themselves, no, they can't, yes, you can, just be okay that it's going to be a process. And if you want to, there's one thing that's true, if you want to get good at it, which I, I wouldn't say that I'm good at it, but if you want to get good at it, I think what is required is time. It's no different than any other skill, it, whether it's a bow drill fire or shooting a basketball or driving a car fast. Mm -hmm. The more you do it, the better off you're going to be at it. And so personally, me, I spend time every single day of my life tracking. Now, that doesn't mean – or doing something related to tracking. That doesn't mean I go out and track. I probably do that four or five days a week. But if it's a day where I can't get out and track, then I'm going to read somebody else's literature or look at somebody else's website or watch somebody else's video. 
because I'm constantly trying to get other ideas and other ways that people have, have done tracking to, to build my own. And that's what I ended up doing to develop my own skill set. I started studying with teachers. One of the things that happens in tracking, as much as it does anywhere else, maybe even more so, is people get really keyed in on a instructor. And so well, one of the first guys I ever trained with said, train with as many people as you can, and I took it to heart, and I did. I've trained with some of the best instructors in the world. I spent a lot of money doing that and a lot of time doing that and a lot of time traveling to and from locations to train with great instructors and then built my own way of teaching. And so I think that is, uh, I think that's key is getting in. I mean, trackers become better trackers by tracking the short of it. Yeah. And the term tracker is controversial in a way, right? It's almost as controversial as the term survival instructor. Like as far as I know, there is no single universally accepted governing body that says, Hey, I'm a survival instructor. Right. And I, it's almost as bad as someone saying I'm an expert, right? You, who's claiming you're an expert, right? Like anyone can go out and say that they're an expert with tracking. I know that there are like combat tracking schools that will certify as trackers, right? Mm -hmm. For combat tracking, totally different art. I'm assuming than the hunter tracking. I mean, thinking about what you were, you were saying with how it's not magic. It's, it's a, it's a method. One of my mentors, uh, one of my, one of my instructors, he would say before there was science, there was magic. And I think people are drawn to this magic. And if you say, wow, tracking is magic and I'm a tracker, now suddenly you're like a magician and people are drawn to that. Do you, how? I can lay it out like this. Yeah, go, here's yeah, the deal. You know where I'm, you know so, where I'm going. I do. This. Daniel Boone, probably one of the best trackers that have ever lived. Yeah. Um, one instance, his daughter and two of their friends were taken from the Kentucky River. This is history from my home, literally my hometown, my backyard, basically. Um, a Cherokee leader and two Shawnee Braves grabbed these three girls and took them cross country. It took them about 50 miles. Boone got on the trail, tracked them in about a day and a half for 50 miles and, and covered that ground at 50 miles in a day and a half. He's never been to any of those tracking schools that are the best of the best in the world. None of them. Now, how did he do that? Tracking. He spent a lot of time tracking. And that's where you got to be real careful. For example, I get the opportunity on occasion to teach law enforcement, military combat tracking, but I've never been law enforcement, never been military. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between tracking and teaching small unit tactics. I'm not going to teach small unit tactics. I'm not the guy to do that. I will have somebody else with whoever it is that I'm teaching, teach those small unit tactics. Now I have been through several schools where I've gotten, you know, level one, level two, uh, training with different combat tracking schools so I can at least share some information from that background. But the key is this. The key is that a tracker, and, and I've changed as I get older, and I, the, more, the older I get, the more I get this way. If you start tracking tomorrow, you're a tracker in my mind, really, because a good tracker is somebody that recognizes they don't know it and they got to continue learning. Mm-hmm. It's a constant state of learning, a student for life, literally. And so it doesn't matter if you're like me. I've been tracking for probably 45 years. I'm 52 years old, and I know I was tracking when I was a kid going through that, down that track line. But that doesn't mean I feel like I've got it. That's why I keep going out there because yeah. I don't. I know. I mean, it's a lot. You may have experienced this, and some of our listeners may have experienced where they get into martial arts training or oh, yeah. shooting basketball where, you know, um, you know, I did judo for, I've done judo for almost 30 years and I've been doing BJJ for about two and mm-hmm. doing FCS for about three. And so it's, you know, I'm starting over when it comes to those yeah. things, but always be time, a white belt always. But, it, but even in judo, there's things that I don't know about Ogoshi. <laughs> the first throw you learn when you walk in the door, it don't matter. It, it nearly every judo instructor. I know the first throw you're going to learn is Ogoshi and, I still don't feel like I've got Ogoshi right. And I've been doing it for over 25 years. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I think that attitude is, will help you more than anything as a tracker because you've, you've, we cannot put our preconceived ideas into what's happening on the ground. We have to let the ground speak to us. And I'm not talking hocus pocus talking to mm-hmm. us. You've got to let what happens on the ground be what's happening on the ground. 
you can critically assess it, look at it, make observations about it, and then make interpretations about those observations. So to do that, you can't put your own preconceived ideas there. It, it just does not work at all. Yeah, I think there's actually a lot of freedom in admitting that you're never going to know it all. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I, I agree, 100%. Because if you tell yourself, oh my God, I need to learn this by the time I die, you're going to be living in a stressful condition that you'll never be able to absorb all the information because you've got that stress. And it's okay to not know it all, right? And, you know, I think there are a lot of people that want to be like Jason Bourne or they want to be <laughs> like, you know, James Bond. And maybe there's one guy that's a really good driver and another guy that's a really good shooter and maybe another guy that is a language specialist. It's very rare. And trust me, they do exist. There are people out there that are really good at all that stuff. But to be at that level that you see in Hollywood, you know, we have to have a, a level of realism and honesty with our expectations of what we're going to be able to acquire in a lifetime. I mean, as you mentioned with martial arts, like, you know, it's okay to, to not know every single nuance of every little detail. That's, that's fine. You know, get yourself to a, a better level tomorrow than you are today. Right. We sure. always say that and, and, and be okay with that. Um, now this tracking class that we do, um, a lot of people are probably wondering like, what are they going to learn in intro to tracking? So, this is not a sales pitch. If you guys want it, you want it. If you don't, then go take my navigation class or something or go buy bullets um, or something. I don't know. You do with your money what you want. But tell us, what will they learn in intro to tracking? First thing we're going to do is I start building a foundation for them to understand that it's a one-day tracking class. And if they want to become better trackers, they're going to take what they learn in that class and then learn more somewhere else. <coughs> what that means is that Right off the bat, we're going to talk about terminology. The things that are out there that people have heard that, so that when they leave, they know what a track, what track means. What is, what is spore? What is sign? What does that mean? What is sign cutting? And all these words, right off the bat, that's the first thing. We're going to talk about those words. We're going to break those down so that we know as we progress through the day what I'm saying when I say, all right, we're looking at, we're looking at aerial sign over here. Then the next thing we do is we get in a pit where we set people up with an ideal situation to see tracks where they get to see a lot of information meaning we're probably going to get in something that has some real fine soil or has some sand so that when you put a track down you can see all sorts of detail in it because you can read things out of the detail and then slowly but surely throughout the day we're going to add some things like we might look at aerial sign what happens when a branch gets brushed what happens with cobwebs it's not what most people think and then slowly but surely start taking other pieces of information away. Because if I walk across this floor in this building right now, I'm not going to leave sign like I do outside walking up that mountain, right? And so what I want to do is build the foundation where people see a lot of stuff, then take some of that away, put them in a different environment so they don't see as much, but there's still sign out there because people don't levitate. And animals don't levitate. They leave sign everywhere they go. We just don't know how to see it. I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, <coughs> Mike Travis sat in on your first class that you taught at the sawmill. Mike Travis, career law enforcement, career police instructor, career. I mean, the guy's done everything. He's chased people. He's done what, all sorts of stuff in the, in the woods looking for bad guys. When I went up to Mike after that class, I said, Mike, you learn anything. His eyes were saucer plates. And he's like, Kevin, I want to take that class. He's like, I'm going to Craig's school at the end of June. He's like, I'm taking, I'm taking multiple classes. He goes, I will absolutely be more effective in my job. And if you know Mike Travis, Mike Travis, Mike Travis is, is very forthcoming with information. And he's not impressed easily. I mean, Mike Travis has seen a lot. When Mike told me about your course, he was I've never seen him in <laughs> such shock. Right. And I believe when he got home, he ordered that night when we were sitting around in the sawmill, he ordered all the books you recommended on right. Amazon. And he was trying to find one, I think you told him that might have been out of print or whatever, but he found it. Uh, and then he signed up for your courses. Yeah. Um, it's <clears throat> it's like the all powerful Oz, right? Like you're 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 showing people like what's behind the curtain and now they're blown away. Well, it's just it's just heightened situational awareness is what it is. And everybody has a certain degree of situational awareness. You know, baseline versus disturbance is the term we use in tracking a lot. And I use the same thing when I'm teaching people how to be aware no matter where they are. 
Everything around us has a certain way that it looks in its natural state. That's baseline. Anything that's different from that is disturbance. Anything that's different from baseline is worthy of our attention. And so that is when we're looking at a forest floor, that's the leaf that's overturned up there. It doesn't look like the rest of the leaves around it. It doesn't mean that it's sign, but it's worthy of our attention because there's too many things out there to take them all in. So we look at that, determine, is that important? Is that something to look at? Same thing if we're looking at a crowd, if we're a security agent, we're a law enforcement officer. If you've got a country music concert and everybody's boom, 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 everybody's going to the rhythm because we all know <laughs> country music concerts have the most fights. So <laughs> if you're looking at that concert and there's a rhythm going on there and then some small subset of the people at that concert, they're not in that rhythm, that's where the fight's getting ready to happen. That's the disturbance in the baseline of that human population at that time. And so that is that is critical to being able to track properly. So in my mind, I want to make everybody in the world trackers. I want to make them all track aware. Because when you become track aware, you actually become more situationally aware. And the beautiful thing about being more situationally aware is that the more you pay attention to what goes on in your surroundings, two things happen. Number one, you're safer because you see more things that are going on. And number two, you live life to the fullest. Instead of having your nose stuck down in a phone or you're not paying attention to what your significant other saying, you're literally paying attention to what's going on around you and you can gather more information from it. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> something that, that comes up frequently is uh, people always say, well, you know, how can I, and this is how tracking and self-defense are tied hand in hand, how, how can I protect myself from whatever? Well, be aware. Get out of your mm -hmm. phone. Uh, stop going with the crowd. Instead of looking for the easiest exit, look for the exit when you walk in that is the inconvenient exit that people probably see, but they are not registering to go to in a, in a, in a threat. Um, there, there's so much, I mean, with tracking and there's so much overarch, like shelter construction. Whenever we're teaching a course, people will, will break off evergreens or they'll find branches in, with leaves still on them. And I'll tell people, I'll be like, look, if you look at the top of that uh, balsam fir, it's dark green. If you turn that thing over and you're trying to be found, it's now light green, but realize there's a trade-off. Yes, it's more visible, but those balsam fir needles are actually designed to uh, push water off a certain way. And if you turn them upside down, it's actually going to bring water into you. Um, but that's something like, like for someone who is doing like the, like a survival shelter in like say hostile territory where they don't want to be found that little nuance of, of the leaf being darker on the top and light on the bottom. I mean, that could give away your position sure. in a heartbeat. Yeah, um, absolutely. What, as a tracker, is there anything that you could tell the listeners like, Hey, if you want to be found, like, cause we just said the thing last night on loss proofing. If you want to be found, Hey, you should do this. Everything's got to be different than what's around you. You've got to become the disturbance. So if there is a situation that's happening where you're in uh, mixed hardwood forest, like we have in Kentucky, then you want to put something that is around you that is green. For example, if you're going to build a signal fire and you build a signal fire that puts off white smoke and that white smoke is uh, on a background of snow. Nobody's going to see it. You've got to have something that's oil-based, that makes black smoke, something that makes you look different than what is your background. That's going to help bring attention. Um, I'm a big fan of no matter what I'm wearing or what, where I'm going or what I'm doing in the outdoors, I'm usually earth-toned and almost most of the time camouflaged because I do a lot of habitat study um, and my clothes are already sprayed with uh, bug spray. And so I'll, I'll usually put the same jacket on every time I go out. But I always take an orange bandana with me so that if something happens to me and somebody's coming looking for me and I'm laying there in camouflage and look like the woods, I want to put something up that looks different than the woods. And so I've got to do something where I become that disturbance. I want to become something besides what is the baseline. I don't want to look like it. Do you have a preferred color to stand <clears throat> out? Because we always joke about tarp blue, how you can see that like a mile away. Well, interesting. When I wrote my second book, um, which we got to talk about, by the way. Yeah, but, Ultimate yeah. Wilderness Gear. Um, I did a study on that very thing, okay? And I, um, well, went silly there for a minute. 
ophthalmologist. Is that an eye doctor? I can't remember. I, th- I think so. Anyway, uh, I interviewed two. And one of the things. Optometrist. Optometrist. There yeah. it is. I don't know what ophthalmologist is. Maybe people Maybe. in the comments can say what it is. Yeah, there it is. Thank you. Let yeah. me know. Let me know. Um, but one of the things that came out of that is that the reason we're seeing fire trucks, for example, having a lot of fluorescent yellow on them is that there is a vibration that actually happens in the eyeball when you see that color. You won't sense it. You won't feel it. You don't recognize it's happening. It's happening deep inside the eyeball. And it forces you to look at it. It forces you to look at it. And because of that, if you get something that's fluorescent yellow, people have to look at it. They have to. Their eyeball vibrates when they see it. It's a very interesting way that this thing works. And so if I'm going to recommend something, you just there's just not a lot out there that's made in fluorescent yellow because it's rude. Okay, it's rude. <laughs> it's rude to have a tarp out of fluorescent yellow, right? But if I could, that's probably what I'd want to have out there. You're talking about like the like highway like yes. traffic workers. And that's why they yeah. are in that color. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of research that goes into why they are wearing that color, and it's because your eye is forced to see that color, whether you want to or not. It's, uh, it's very interesting. More so than orange. Th- than blaze orange. Yeah. More so than blaze orange. Now, back to your books. Uh, your first book I, I thought was awesome. Uh, I enjoyed reading it because I enjoyed that you incorporated similar philosophy to mine, which is best tool for the job. Use anything that's available. You weren't bound to one particular discipline, whether it was traditional skills, primitive skills, modern survival. It was just like best tool for the job. Second book was the gear book. Mm -hmm. Third book was the navigation book. But let's talk about those because you have a fourth one coming out, right? Mm -hmm. I do. Yep. So let's go through the tell everyone like where they can find you because normally at this time in the podcast it'd be like hey where can you find this guy and they'd say like at nature reliance school or at cry Caldwell, you know but what about your books tell them what they can find in your books naturereliance.org is a website and i have a listing for those books then it directs you to an amazon mm-hmm. link it's just that simple um and so there's a little bit more detailed information on my website about the books and the backgrounds and, and that go along with them um those books the first book i wrote out of my head I mean, it's mindset, skills, tactics, and gear, my approach to survival. I think it's a puzzle piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, each one of those are a puzzle piece that makes the clear puzzle of survival, mindset, skills, tactics, and gear. You can't do survival right, in my opinion, without all four puzzle pieces. Mindset is, you know, bulletproofing your mind. Skills is skills. Uh, tactics is just a fancy word that I use to describe communicating and working with others when they're with you. And then gear. Most people focus on skills and gear. And they don't do mindset very well, and they don't do tactics very well. And so I heavily invested a lot of time, energy, and research into that, into the book, which translated over into my classwork as well. And that's in every class that I teach. That four puzzle pieces are in every class that I teach, whether it's tracking or nav or survival or what have you. The gear book was not the book I wanted to write. The publisher wanted me to write that book (laughs) because they, they wanted to bank on the idea that everybody wants gear. Um, <clears throat> the most one of the most misunderstood books in my opinion in the industry and in that everybody thought it was a buyer's guide it's not it's a it's an encyclopedia of gear these these are what grinds are out there this is how you use this grind this is what handle material this is what works this is what doesn't work these are the insulation insulation materials you can put into a jacket or when you go to buy a jacket look for these insulation materials don't buy these socks, buy those socks. Not necessarily buy those, but buy them made from this material. On and on and on. Plus, it's a huge book. It's a great book. Um, but it's not sold a lot because people misunderstand it. Yeah. And then third, the NAV book that I wrote with Tracy Trimble from our school. Tracy teaches our land navigation at Nature Reliance School. What ended up happening with that book is that we had people over and over and over and over again come to class going, hey, I, I want to do this. And I've bought books, but I can't understand them. And then they would leave class and go, you all took all this stuff that was really hard and made it really simple to understand. Mm-hmm. Why don't you all write a book? We just kept hearing that over and over and over. So finally, when that, the possibility of the third book happening with uh, Page Street, I talked them into doing that book. Now, that's probably going to end up being the most successful book that we've got. Um, that, that book is... They're, they're all good. Don't get me wrong. I put blood, sweat, and tears into every one of those books. But that book is, has not met the right person yet. 
it'll be famous someday. It'll be a, it'll be a New York Times bestseller. It's it's good. Yeah, what I like about that third book, and I, I don't think people realize this, is that you include a training map in there, which which is really important as a an educator, right? You can, if you wanted to, set up a Zoom call or a group chat or whatever. Everyone can literally be speaking the same language using the same exact training map. And there was even something I reached out to you once about, and I was like, hey, Craig, what is this on the map? What are these little numbers? And you're like, oh, they're mines. And I'm like, well, we don't have a lot of mines in Connecticut, so that's <laughs> that's new to me. I learned something, right? right? right. Um, but I like the fact that you include the training map because people will often ask, where can I get a good map from? Well, that map that you include is a good map, and it will help a person find the attributes of a good map that they should look for in their, their area. By the way, our recommendation is always MyTopo. Love that website. It's phenomenal. Um, but uh, what about the fourth book? What do, you, what, what do you got cooking? Can you talk about that? I can. I hope so. Oh, they right. haven't told me that I can't. So. Okay. Uh, it's a children's book. And I was contacted by a publisher out of London, England. Uh, we haven't talked about the fact that I'm a master naturalist. I'm a certified master naturalist with the University of Kentucky now. Uh, I'm also a naturalist through Wilderness Awareness School, Level 2. And uh, that that helps me understand a lot of big words in the outdoors that I don't use when I'm teaching, but it helps me understand like plant systematics and how to study plants and how to find resources and whatnot. But this publisher contacted me to write a book and the working title for months and months was Let Nature Be Your Guide. And there's two kids in the book and they're adventurers and they're going around to different parts all over the world, which required a lot of research. And just seeing nature for what it is and that sometimes you can find direction with a rainbow sometimes you can find that if that bird is flying that direction that time of day it's going to water um you know that bees always fly in a line either going typically going to water or going to pollen so there's all these different things that you can see and we did this for the Kalahari desert we did it for ireland we did it for australia a couple places in the united states all over all over South America and basically our two adventures go through the book and go to these different parts of the world and look at nature and realize oh nature's basically guiding me and and telling me things that I may have missed before whether it's you know this butterfly only nests on this plant and then only nest on this plant on the east side because that's going to get the morning sun and so you can look at the eggs of this particular butterfly on this plant and know that's east and a lot of other stuff like that uh, throughout the whole book and because it took me outside of an area that I'm familiar with you know there's 25 sections in the book and only two of them are in the United States and none of them are from Kentucky then I had to do as much research as I've ever done on any project I, I literally read about 20 books just to understand some things I did so much research obviously online with different scientific journals and peer-reviewed articles and just mind-numbingly boring stuff just to get to that one little fact because I didn't want to put something in the book like moss always grows on the north side of trees which we all know is wrong and personally I think that made its way into a children's book somewhere and it's been told for years now and and that's just wrong and so uh, I took it very serious that I was writing a children's book and it would be stuff that children might take with them for the rest of their life but that book doesn't come out till March of 2022 Mm. Uh, my part of it is done other than some minor editing now as you well know it's handed over to the creative uh, geniuses at, at Magic Cat Publishing uh, the illustrator for the book uh, she is unbelievable I mean it wouldn't be a book my words are important but her illustrations are making it over the top good so yeah we're excited about it that's awesome yeah we put a lot of emphasis on kids over here uh, Amber is our mama bear for Fieldcraft. She's putting out a lot of cool information about, you know, incorporating kids into the great outdoors. I hope you're ready for a book signing in the warehouse that we took a walk through earlier with probably a couple hundred screaming kids. Yeah, um, I'm down for that. You know, they're they're usually loaded with boogers and snot. Um, so, <laughs> you know, you're going to get books handed to you that are probably stuck together. That's um, all right. Yeah, it is what it is. As long as they're getting them outside, I don't care. Yeah, I know, right? Um, all right, so we're running, running short on time here. Craig, Here's the real question. Where can people find you? <laughs> NatureReliance.org is our website. I have all the social media there. I have all the links to all that social media there, uh, including YouTube. We got about 75,000 over on YouTube now, Facebook and Instagram. I'm on the gram, you know, as they say. 
Um, my wife does a whole lot of our social media, so she's an excellent photographer. So you get great photography there. See some stuff that that I'm doing. She's shooting me, making me look pretty, and all that stuff. Uh, gear reviews, all that stuff's on naturereliance.org. I'm in Central Kentucky if you want to visit, but also check out Fieldcraft because I'm going to be doing a lot more with yes, Fieldcraft. You are. It like. Yes, you so, are. Yes, you are. We'll be traveling a lot doing Fieldcraft this year. Pennsylvania, Texas. Uh, we've been down to South Carolina already. We'll probably be out at U- out here in Utah whenever mm-hmm. uh, the need arises. So look for me at Fieldcraft as well. Absolutely. And if you guys want to host us, uh, hosting survival classes is very different than a gun range. So reach out to me, uh, Estella at fieldcraftsurvival.com, and I'll be more than happy to entertain your questions about whether or not we can host you. Guys, if you could not tell, uh, there's a reason why Craig was in my top three of people that I wanted to recommend to bring on as contractors for Fieldcraft when I signed on. You know, recommendations are are always tricky, right? Like you can say, well, I recommend this guy for this, but not for that. I can honestly say that I recommend Craig for navigation, survival, tracking. I mean, across the board, if if I didn't feel comfortable teaching someone or if I couldn't teach someone, I would have no problem recommending Craig as as the the guy I'd want to step in. So, I think what we got to do now is we got to go check out that property. You're gonna go Let's do it. Do some scouting on. So, guys, that means if we're gonna leaving, go do my tracking for the day. Yeah, Craig, Craig's got to do tracking. <laughs> we already ate our burgers and salads and stuff like that. But Craig's gonna do his tracking. We got to get off of here. So, again, I'm Kevin Estella with Fieldcraft Survival. Thank you so much for listening.